Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Conversations with Omi Naidu, the show where we connect the experts directly to you. I want to start off by saying a huge thank you to each of you guys that tune in week after week and support the podcast. I'm also excited to see the traction that the podcast is growing not only nationally but internationally, now being listened to in more than 20 countries. So a huge thank you. In this episode I speak to Dr. Emmanuel Cherida, who's a researcher, a physician, as well as a specialist in clinical nutrition. Dr. Cherida has more than 251 publications and is based at Fundazione Hospital, which is very close to the first hospitals for the outbreak of COVID-19 in Italy. He's got an amazing amount of knowledge and has great great perspectives on sarcopenia. I hope you enjoy this episode, but let's not forget the whole purpose is to share the message amongst colleagues and think about how can you change what you're doing in your clinical practice. Thanks again and enjoy. A special thanks to the guys from Nutrisha for supporting this episode. It's a warm welcome to Dr. Cherida. Good morning, nice to meet you. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, we're just going to get straight into it today. If we could just start off with uh, I know that you're a medical doctor by background and what has sparked your interest or your journey in clinical nutrition? Well, uh primarily my activities uh, is focused on the management of all the patients admitted to the hospital and uh requiring uh, artificial nutrition support. So maybe my activities are uh, starts from uh, neonatal intensive care up to the uh the old adults uh, admitted to surgical or uh, medical departments uh, uh basically in an acute care hospital even if my background is also in long term cares and uh with a specific uh, interest in uh, neurodegenerative diseases but anyway you know uh nutrition is a real transversal science uh, potentially to be taken into account uh, uh, in any patient with any disease for heavy specialties Yes. So the reason I touched base with you was after reading your article in the Journal of Cachexia, Sarcopenia and Muscle in December 2020, where you touched on a lot of new interventions for sarcopenia. So if I could start this off by asking, you know, what is sarcopenia and how prevalent is it in the elderly as well as the hospitalized patient? Well, uh, sarcopenia is uh, uh by definition uh, is a true disease in which you have uh, a loss of muscle mass associated with the loss of muscle strength and muscle function so with a reduction in uh, physical performance. The existence of uh, muscle weakness and uh, reduced muscle performance denote two different conditions which are sarcopenia or even severe sarcopenia if also uh reduced physical performance is uh, is present uh by now uh is considered a disease of aging but anyway you can find it in any healthcare setting starting from the community which the prevalence is around 5-10% and then it goes up uh, if you move uh, for example to uh, a patient to home care services in which the prevalence could be just uh, between uh, 50% 30% in hospitalized patient the prevalence uh, may be up to 
And when you have a patient going out, for example, from hospital and uh, going to rehabilitation care setting, the prevalence could be up to 75%. So it's quite prevalent disease uh, and, uh, uh, okay, yes, it should be of true interest for also for resource allocators because uh, uh, has a negative impact on many patients' outcomes. Wow, that just hearing the up to 75% gives me a bit of a chill down my spine. Yeah. Sure. Look, definitely quite a big problem. So you, you touched on, you know, the, some of the consequences or you touched on, you know, they have a poor outcome with sarcopenia. Could you just elaborate further in terms of what are the ne negative effects in terms of loss of muscle mass? Well, in first instance, if you look at the patient, uh, for example, starting the patient in the community, so the general uh, daily life, uh, uh, sarcopenia is responsible for disability. And uh, this disability obviously uh, negative impacts the quality of life of uh, the patient suffering from sarcopenia. But uh, the reduction of muscle mass, so in, in more in general of limb body mass, uh, the, the most noble tissues that we have in our body, uh, may be responsible of uh, uh, important negative consequences that are related to, uh, to disability. Uh, if, we, if we talk about, for example, of, uh, uh, falls uh, or uh, um, capacity of the patient in dealing with uh, daily activities. But uh, once you have a patient that is admitted to hospital, uh, the loss of muscle mass uh, reflects the poor capacity of the patient to cope with uh, uh, an acute uh, inflammatory stress uh, within the body. And so you reduce resistance and resiliency to acute care condition and acute stresses. And this uh, uh, is associated with uh, higher mortality and uh, incapacity of the, for example, of the patient to, to come back home. And uh, with, with several patients requiring institutionalization or admission to a rehabilitation care unit in order to recover uh, at least in part from, uh, uh, from the acute stress they have suffered from in the previous period. Okay, and could you help us understand the factors that contribute to sarcopenia? We, you've mentioned that it's quite a big issue. It has a big impact in terms of the patient journey and outcome. But what gets this patient to this point of having sarcopenia? Well, there are several factors contributing to, uh, to sarcopenia. In first instance, I would consider aging. So sarcopenia is a disease that truly associated with aging because uh, with aging, uh, uh, the, the patients are more likely to reduce uh, their physical activity, and this is associated with a reduction of, uh, of muscle mass. But anyway, there are also uh, acute conditions that can uh, trigger and uh, uh, being responsible in this way of, uh, of the onset of uh, the occurrence of sarcopenia, sorry. Um, first instance, uh, Hospitalization is frequently associated with the immobilization of the patient. If you consider that bed rest in, uh, in a young person is associated with a small reduction in muscle mass in 10 days for a patient aged uh, over 60, over 65, it's usually a result in, uh, uh, in a loss of about two, three kilograms of muscle mass. So immobilization is a major problem 
uh, if it is associating particularly with, with aging, but also an increased inflammatory background that could be associated with uh, both uh, chronic or acute uh, diseases uh, could be responsible or for uh, muscle wasting. And, uh, but I would not uh, forget also the importance of nutrition. Sometimes immobilization uh, with social dysfunction, but also hospitalization, acute or chronic diseases may be responsible also for poor nutrition. But once you have a patient uh, eating less, in, uh, in the short term, uh, particularly if uh, uh, this is associated with an inflammatory background, uh, it is associated with a significant reduction in, uh, in muscle mass. So uh, I would say inflammation, poor nutrition, and immobilization are the three main factors responsible for sarcopenia. Okay, and then could you give us a summary of your study that you did, uh, where you which, which you published in in December twenty twenty? Uh, just looking at you know what exactly were some of the endpoints you were looking at, and what were your findings? Well, uh, yeah, so there is a lot of background in, in uh, for this study. Uh, in first instance. Uh, uh, we have to consider the high prevalence of uh, uh, sarcopenia in a rehabilitation care setting. We told that uh, three out of four patients are suffering from uh, this disease. And, but the major problem is the fact also that we have uh, international guidelines recommending uh, a specific treatment for sarcopenia. It should be physical rehabilitation in association with uh, nutritional rehabilitation. And nutritional rehabilitation should be based on uh, uh, vitamin D optimization, but also optimization of protein intake. In absence of uh, contraindication, the uh, protein support in this patient population, it should be up to 1.5 grams of, uh, uh, for kilograms of body weight. So 1.0 gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. And, uh, uh, and it should be accompanied by a, a physical uh, rehabilitation. But uh, despite the, this recommendation, uh, unfortunately, uh, evidence from clinical trials was still uh, uh, limited, specifically for the endpoints that have been uh, considered and addressed by previous trials. Because uh, uh, if we consider that now, uh, sarcopenia trials should focus uh, not on muscle mass. So muscle mass should not be the, the, the primary endpoint. It should be in, uh, a key secondary endpoint. But uh, in first instance, uh, clinical trials should address physical performance. This should be the primary endpoint. All previous trials at least to address these endpoints. So the IRIS study was primarily uh, designed to address a physical performance and point, but also physical functions and point and muscle mass. This is uh, the, the, the true difference between uh, previous literature and uh, the additional value of this clinical trial, which specifically focused on a recommended treatment Okay, so if I understand you correctly, you know, the previous trials looked a lot at muscle mass or muscle size, 
but you guys then took it a step further to understand in terms of functionality and physical performance. Yeah. Okay. And, and what was the evidence in terms of what is the evidence in terms of vitamin D, leucine and whey protein in terms of improving muscle mass and functionality? Well, if we consider the recommended treatment for, from guidelines, uh, uh, guidelines uh, <clears throat> indicate that uh, patients should receive uh, at least uh, three times daily, three meals uh, in which uh, uh, the content of protein should be up to 25, 30 grams of uh, protein. But it should be of high quality protein because uh, uh, muscle anabolism clearly depends uh, on the provision of essential amino acids. So uh, we do need uh, not only proteins, but high quality proteins to enable the patient recovery from, uh, uh, um, from the disease and to recovery muscle mass, muscle function and muscle performance. Uh, leucine is a key essential amino acid uh, this amino acid has an independent capacity to stimulate muscle anabolism. And, uh, uh, but we have also basic science studies showing that uh, a good amount of protein with a high content of leucine in combination with vitamin D do cooperate in, uh, uh, in stimulating muscle anabolism and uh, um, favoring the recovery of uh, muscle mass and muscle function. Dr. Chulida, you also commented earlier on your, your physical activity being you know, part of the, the strategy to increase the functionality of the patient. Are there any comments or any findings that you would uh, discuss or, or mention where in terms of timing of physical activity and administration of these protein doses, is there any relationship to that or can you suggest anything for the listeners? Well, there are different studies in, in literature. Honestly, in, uh, in our trial, we try to combine supplementation of uh, uh, high quality uh, nutrition support and, um, and, physical, uh, and physical training, physical exercise. To be honest, in first instance, uh, I will take care of uh, providing both. But uh, uh, we, we do have evidence also that uh, these kind of supplementation can uh, improve muscle mass and muscle performance to some extent independently of uh, physical exercise. But if you provide both, uh, uh, you can achieve uh, uh, better results, uh, even if, uh, unfortunately, there is uh, no clinical trial specifically addressing uh, a true comparison between uh, no treatment, only nutrition, only physical exercise, and both, just to see if uh, the combination uh, uh, enables to, to achieve uh, uh, better results. Uh, even... Okay, if we look at literature and we look at the, the crude results in the different trial, we have the impression that the combination works better. So the idea is just to combine. And, uh, but in respect to the timing, okay, there are uh, different strategies. Sometimes uh, uh, thinking about the real practice uh, and not just uh, science, uh, because sometimes we have to 
uh, we have to try at least to translate uh, uh, what we can study in a clinical trial into daily practice. So uh, probably it is advisable to have supplementation just after the physical training uh, session. But uh, anyway, if we cannot do this, uh, we are not uh, doing uh, uh, worse if we uh, try to provide both uh, to uh, achieve uh, both treatments in every patient. And, uh, uh, and not just thinking about which could be the result. So sometimes, okay, let's try do both. If we can, we can try to administer supplementation just after physical exercise. But if we cannot, we are not uh, uh, doing worse because we are providing both to the patient. Indeed, uh, physical activity has an independent effect in stimulating muscle recovery because you are stressing the muscle and uh, these uh, uh, increase the capacity of uh, uh, to respond to an anabolic stimulus, which could be good nutrition. Okay, so I had watched your, your ESPEN session in 2020 and you had discussed low physical functioning in COVID-19 patients. So if I could ask, what advice would you give to dietitians to minimize this? You know, it's we in South Africa are now going into our third wave of, of COVID-19. And what advice in general would you say to try and minimize this uh, low physical functioning? Well, uh, I think that uh, uh, COVID-19 has uh, uh, important consequences on uh, on the body. In first instance, there is an increased inflammatory background, and uh, but we are lucky because uh, after the introduction of uh, uh, steroids uh, in, uh, in the treatment of this patient, we were able to reduce, to cut down, to really cut down the inflammation within the body and the wasting associating with the, these uh, uh, inflammatory background that has been called the cytokine storm. Uh, the major problem in this patient, uh, specifically for those admitted to ICU, uh, is the mobilization. So uh, the best way could be to consider at least uh, a, a physiotherapy, if possible, directly in the ICU and to feed the patient. Because in, during the first wave, uh, uh, we felt really unprepared and we were not addressing nutrition in the best way because we were too much thinking how to cope with the patient need and how to manage the disease. Now that we have understood how to treat the patient in the best way, uh, we were able to refocus more on uh, uh, supportive care uh, intervention, including nutrition which is not only a supportive uh, care because uh, we are able to uh, uh, to counteract the, the the muscle wasting the patient is uh, experiencing. Uh, I will not care on uh, uh, about uh, the type of nutrition, just to feed the patient. If we can provide high quality nutrition is even better. So in the acute phase, it should be treat the patient in the best way and try to address 
the patient needs. And, uh, but I would consider that probably nutrition is the true core of the rehabilitation phase and the recovery phase of the patient. So once the patient is uh, uh, going out of hospital, uh, we should really focus on high quality nutrition and some supplement, the use of some supplements in order to cope with the patient need should be reasonably considered because we have experience in other disease models. And I would stress these, uh, I would say that COVID, uh, it's, it's just a disease model that uh, uh, refreshed and emphasized the importance of uh, all the types of intervention, including nutrition, but it's only a disease model. So once you have the patient uh, requiring a recovery, you should address all the therapies that could be uh, considered for that, for that patient. And this could be physical exercise, but, could, but should be also good nutrition. So high quality supplementation, I would say that uh, uh, makes uh, this process uh, shorter and the, the recovery faster. Okay, so in terms of diagnosing sarcopenia or picking it up earlier, we know that the SARC-F is one of the tools available. Is there anything else that you'd recommend that dietitians should keep you know, on hand in terms of their toolbox to detect and diagnose and pick up these, uh, these muscle wasting scenarios? Well, I must recognize that a major problem is to, again, translate uh, uh, research and uh, um, to, let me say, uh, a, a more scientific approach to clinical practice. So if we want to address uh, the diagnosis of sarcopenia in the best way, we should uh, uh, measure uh, physical function, we should measure physical performance, but we also uh, should measure to uh, muscle mass. Sometimes a body composition technologies are not available in, in every setting. So uh, bedside procedure and uh, uh, tools that could be uh, applied uh, in daily practice are obviously welcome. And the SARCAF is a, a useful tool to address uh, uh, the diagnosis of sarcopenia. But uh, if we have the possibility to measure something in this patient, for, in, in every patient, I will measure. Uh, that is to say, uh, if we look at the work done by uh, several expert panels and, uh, uh, um, and the different societies, uh, a lot of time has been spent uh, on identifying different measures of physical performance. We can use the time up and go, we can use the chair stand, we can use the, uh, the short physical performance battery, we can use the, the gate speed, the evaluation of gate speed, but also the measurement of muscle strength with N-grip uh, dynamometry. So we have different tools and uh, if available, at least one could be considered in order to integrate uh, 
a, uh, the use of uh, a simple questionnaire. If we don't have it, we should rely on uh, more practical tools, but if we can measure something, we should measure. And uh, in respect to body composition, I know that uh, uh, for DEXA is, for example, uh, less available in, in a clinical setting, uh, but uh, uh, bioelectrical impedance is uh, more likely to be a feasible uh, evaluation in uh, and the bedside procedure to be taken into account. But we can measure also calf circumference or muscle, uh, muscle arm circumference if we don't have uh, more advanced technologies. This uh, is uh, not uh, just for increasing uh, the, the, the amount of information we have collected that we can collect in a patient, but it's just to have uh, a methodology that we can repeat just to monitor in the best way the efficacy of our interventions. That's why it's important to measure something in, uh, in every patient. If we don't have uh, the possibility to measure something, okay, let's rely on uh, more practical tools. But once we have a possibility, at least consider it as a useful way to monitor your intervention. Okay, so if, if I understand you correctly, you know, try and find some sort of uh, method of, of assessing, try and make it standardized throughout that patient's journey so that you can compare week on week or day on day or every month or whatever you, you are reviewing the patient on. In your presentation, you also discussed the recover trial. And I'm not sure if it's commenced already or how far you are. But could you just give us a snapshot of, of what are you looking to achieve with that trial? Well, uh, the RECOVID trial uh, has been designed just to give an answer uh, on the recovery of uh, COVID-19 patients. And uh, the idea is, was just to uh, enable the patient recovery better and faster because uh, uh, we have a lot of data right now uh, suggesting that uh, some symptoms, uh, such as uh, fatigue, exertion of dyspnea, are still present after three, six months after discharge. So we do need to provide some patient more uh, intensive intervention in order to make the recovery uh, better and faster. And the recovery, uh, uh, is an intervention trial uh, uh, relying on the use of high-quality nutritional supplementation based on the use of whey protein, leucine, and vitamin D in association with uh, uh, tailored physical exercise, home-based physical exercise, just to, um, uh, to enable the patient recovery better. And uh, so it is based on uh, uh, literature and on the efficacy of uh, uh, this kind of uh, supplementation. And uh, the idea, despite we, we were not able to, to design a randomized trial, is just to collect uh, evidence that uh, we can achieve more from a more intensive intervention in patients that are experiencing a significant loss of muscle mass and muscle function from this tremendous disease. 
Okay, so if I were to think of, uh, you know, my practice and practically what happens in, in our hospitals, as a nutrition expert, uh, you know, you, you're somebody who's, who's got all this expertise and you've done the research, how would you recommend or how would you advise us to create these post-COVID protocols or programs? Because we know that the patients essentially are, are not achieving their nutritional requirements. Firstly, in terms of frequency, you know, once a patient is discharged from hospital, seldom do we get to see them unless they readmitted if you're in the private sector. And if you were trying to standardize your care, especially for those long COVID patients, firstly, how often should we see them after discharge? Uh, how often do we monitor them? And in terms of, you know, proteins, calories, anything specific that you would say from the rehabilitation phase? So they've finished the ICU stay and now they're on their journey at home. Well, <laughs> I think it's a big issue and a, a, a really good question. Unfortunately, the best answer should be uh, try to do uh, the best for your patient, but looking at uh, your local situation. Because uh, uh, honestly, I have been asked uh, to, uh, to talk about uh, uh, how to manage uh, nutritional care in COVID-19 patients since the first wave, because as you know, uh, my hospital is just near the first, uh, uh, the first wave. I was directly involved in the first wave in Europe. Uh, wow. So uh, it was about uh, 20 kilometers far from the, or from the place where the first wave uh, started in, uh, in Europe. So I was just in, <laughs> uh, in the worst situation, uh, what uh, what we have learned from these uh, uh, from this experience is just to uh, rely on your capacity in the in uh, and but taking into account what you can really do in your uh, local setting. Because sometimes in the different countries, I was asked, as I told you, to, to talk about uh, uh, how to manage, but in the different countries, the situation is completely different. Sometimes you have uh, a full reimbursement of oral nutritional supplements. In other countries, you don't have. Sometimes you have clinical nutrition specialists in the hospital, and sometimes you don't have it. Sometimes you can, uh, you can build up a, a post-discharge protocol, but sometimes you cannot because you don't have the space, you don't have, uh, uh, I would say not private practice. Uh, sometimes you have uh, uh, insurances supporting the patient, sometimes you don't have. So it's really heterogeneous, the situation. I, I cannot say, let's build up this type of protocol because uh, I should know what's situation what's the true situation in in, uh, in your country the idea is uh, to to start doing uh, uh, the best for your patients in submission regardless of the setting of care so icu or medical words depending on the severity of the disease you should start early sometimes we have a patient that is admitted to a medical ward and then goes to the icu and then goes back to the uh, to the medical world, sometimes you have a patient that is directly, immediately uh, admitted to ICU. Sometimes you don't need intensive care uh, for this patient population. So it's completely different. 
the best way is to take care of nutrition since admission, just to optimize uh, nutritional support in the best way. It could be oral, it could be enteral, it could be parenteral, depending on the patient condition. But you should consider any type of nutrition. They are not uh, mutually exclusive, but uh, they could be integrated to each other in, in the patient journey. But once you have a patient going out and going back to home or to a rehabilitation care, I think in that moment, we can do really more for the patient because uh, you, you don't have to care too much, for example, on uh, the, the respiratory system or the other problems that uh, brought the patient to the hospital. And in that phase, you can really do a lot for the patient. So if you can access, if you, if you can have access to uh, oral nutrition and supplement, high quality nutrition and supplementation, you should consider it at least for a short period. The best way is to have several evaluations of the patient. So uh, it could be on a monthly basis, uh, weekly, uh, I think uh, probably has more, no sense because uh, uh, we know that nutrition could play a role at least in four, eight weeks. So at least on a monthly basis, if possible, let's try to address uh, the reassessment of the patient. But I know that the problem of COVID is also the, the higher number of patients in the short period. So sometimes on a monthly basis is not feasible because you don't have the personnel for doing these, uh, uh, these reassessment. So depending also on uh, uh, local human resources, let's try to image which could be a feasible approach uh, to this patient population is uh, every two months okay two months could be enough but indeed more than nothing so it should be adapted really on your local situation but in this way i think you can do uh, quite a lot for your patient i think it's, it's great how the focus is, is definitely growing in terms of that rehabilitation phase you know there was a definite trend to focus a lot more in the ICU, a lot more in the acute setting. And it's amazing that research is like you are showing us the great evidence of intervening and having targeted interventions in that rehabilitation phase and you know how you're definitely seeing the benefits of that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I... If I could just finally close off and ask uh, one more question. Yeah. Sarcopenia and obesity, you know, how does that interplay uh, a lot of our obese patients in the critical care settings often, you know, that's our concern, you know, the, 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 the treating physician may feel they have enough of a reserve to, to keep uh, prolonged NPO periods. But, you know, very often as a dietitian, we, we, we are concerned of things like sarcopenia, even though they are obese. Well, uh, yeah, uh, sarcopenia obesity is a major problem uh, too. Uh, sometimes uh, the presence of obesity keep the clinicians uh, uh, overlook the problems of loss of muscle mass because, uh, okay, you have a patient that still has uh, reserves, but this is not the case. So the protein stores, despite uh, uh, the, the higher amount of fat, could be very low. So 
the best way to address this issue is to measure probably uh, muscle mass. But we have to consider that uh, once you have a patient that uh, has a lot of comorbidities, is experiencing immobilization, is experiencing a significant inflammatory background in presence of uh, uh, um, an increased inflammatory background, uh, which is uh, uh, which uh, was present before the disease, uh, probably the loss of muscle mass could be higher and faster. So I, I will not distinguish patients on the basis of their obese status because uh, uh, the two factors uh, uh, determining the onset of sarcopenia are poor nutrition, immobilization, and inflammation. And uh, among three, three factors, uh, there is no mention of uh, obesity. So uh, we should address the three key factors and uh, forget that we are dealing with uh, an obese patient. But it's interesting because we have recently published a new paper that is now available in, uh, in clinical nutrition, uh, which is focusing on the role of obesity on, on outcome. And uh, it was interesting, uh, the, the analysis we have conducted showing that uh, Obesity may be a major problem with patients with several comorbidities. But in absence of comorbidities, obesity is a protective factor. That's, that's interesting because the major problem of obesity, particularly uh, in uh, dealing with uh, uh, the worst outcome associated with, uh, with this feature is uh, probably related to do, uh, the the several comorbidity you can find in an obese patient. So probably obesity is masking the loss of muscle mass, but we should remember, I think, and I would stress this, that the three factors that are responsible for sarcopenia are inflammation, poor nutrition, and immobilization. Thanks for that, Dr. Chirida. And I really appreciate how throughout the interview, you've kept a common sentiment and it's kind of stuck with me already, the three factors, uh, immobility, inflammation, and poor nutritional intake being the, the key factors associated with sarcopenia. From my side, it's a huge thank you for the, the wonderful research that you do and thank you for making the time for this episode. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for your interest.